proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the Reformed Confessions of the Faith were written and still have a major impact on the church today. The Confessional Collective desires to see healthy, theologically sound churches planted and on mission for the Kingdom of Christ. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Welcome to the Confessional Collective for Truth Meets Mission. Uh, my name is Aaron Carr. I'm joined with uh, David Menzel and, as always, Chris Santola. Uh, it's been a while since we've been on the air, but uh, we want to get back at it. And uh, so, fellas, I want to just jump right in rather than going through the pleasantries of how we're all doing. Uh, I want to jump in and maximize our time as we talk about a very particular topic, which is the topic of education today. And I want to introduce for our listeners specifically uh, a, a sermon that was given by Samuel Miller. And if you don't know who Samuel Miller is, he was the second professor brought on at Princeton back in Princeton's heyday after Archibald Alexander. Um, this sermon was preached in 1829 on July 3rd, so right before the 4th of July. Surprise, surprise, it wasn't a wasn't a uh, patriotic patriotic <laughs> but uh, uh, what the title of the sermon is the importance of mature preparation for ministry uh, the importance of mature and I want to emphasize that the mature aspect and so what I want to do is just kind of walk us through this sermon each of you guys are going to take the the major points there's eight of them that we will discuss but I want us to look at it in a very unique way because we have three very different, individuals that are that are on this podcast today. Chris, you are a commission pastor and in that route meant you didn't have the credentials to be a full-fledged teaching elder, correct? Uh, right. I, I would not have been considered for minister of word and sacrament. Uh, it, so I came in kind of an alternate route or special circumstances, however you might want to uh, to put that because I did not possess the uh, the MDiv and seminary credentials. And how long was that process for you? Uh, a couple years. A couple years, okay. And you had to take a you had to take a test at the end of that to be qualified, so it wasn't like they just rubber stamped you in. No, no, I had to go before a kind of a board and be examined and uh you know, make sure that uh, they felt that I was uh, fit in my knowledge, my doctrinal understanding, uh, my, my theological understanding, and uh, and really even from there, my family and everything else just equipped for ministry in, in a broad sense. Okay. And <clears throat> and David, currently you are enrolled in seminary. Yep. What seminary are you at? I'm at Knox Seminary. Knox Seminary. And the reason you chose that particular seminary is it allowed you to not only do your education, work on your MDiv, but also stay in your local church because you can do everything online. Correct. That's a more recent thing, but uh, I can I can do the whole MDiv online there. And that was a that was a huge selling point for you. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to speak to why real why that was a big deal for you? Yeah, I'm working full time at the at the church here, and I've got four kids, a wife, and am not in a situation where I can actually uproot and go uh, be at a seminary sometime full time. So still wanting to get the education and be able to uh, work toward ordination. Um, 
that's just a, a more doable thing in that situation. Okay. And my story is that I uh, went to Bible college. After Bible college, did the traditional uh, introduction to ministry through being a, a, a youth pet director. I <laughs> uh, did that for quite a few years. Then after that, realized I needed more education desperately. Um, started pursuing seminary, um, was taking courses here or there by correspondence. Back in those days, boys, we actually used an audio cassette. <laughs> Believe it or not, <laughs> true story. Um, and you would listen to the audio cassette and stop it at a certain point and then uh, take your notes and read your books. And, and then I realized I just need to go away to summer. This is going to take forever. I'm not sure I can do this uh, long haul. And so I went off to RTS in Charlotte where I um, finished my Master's of Divinity from. So I did it in a very traditional route. After that, I went through the ordination process. And so we have very three distinct ways in which uh, uh, this idea of serving uh, in the ministry and what it looks like. And we have been given a paper, again, that was written in 1829, a sermon that was delivered by Samuel Miller. Um, again, he was the second professor at Princeton Seminary. Um, and this paper uh, is focused on the idea of mature preparation for ministry and the, and the importance of it. And so why don't you uh, start us with the first point, uh, Chris, that Samuel Miller makes, and then we'll discuss that. All right. <clears throat> His first point he makes, he says, we are bound to serve Christ with the very best faculties and attainments that we possess or can possibly acquire. And he uses this as a platform he talks about in, in his sermon, the, the giving of the talents. And as he talks about the giving of the talents, he talks about how some have been given two, some have been given ten, but the return, um, good and faithful servant, matters, right? And what are we doing with those talents? And are we uh, just kind of hiding them <laughs> and, and, and in a hole, or are we really investing them and, and so that they can be used for the glory of God? He makes this statement. He says, there is no doubt, indeed, the real success of all Christian um, ministries depend on the mighty power of the Holy Spirit. So he's not he's not removing the role of the Holy Spirit in the training or the or or, or the preparation, but he now is going to move into this idea that to really use our talents well requires training. Does anybody disagree with that? No, no, no disagreement here at all. Not a bit. Training is training is necessary. I think that's one of the things that concerns. The three of us, as we look across the landscape, is there is this everybody's an expert mentality. Uh, yep. I have my internet and I'm good. I can I can quote uh, old dead guys. I can uh, uh, I can study different commentaries through the internet. I'm good. I, I I'm ready to roll. And I, I say that flippantly, but there is that sense in our culture that everybody's an expert, and it is we've lost something. A number of years ago. Uh, there was a book that uh, John Piper and a few others uh, contributed towards, which was the idea of pastor theologian. And when you go back to that, the emphasis was that in the heyday, the pastor was probably the most educated person in the village, uh, that the people had a real respect for the pastor. Do you think that's lost today? And if so, why? I'm kind of already telling you what I want you to say, I guess. But if you disagree, that's fine. <laughs> but uh, what, are your, what are your thoughts, Chris? My thoughts would be you're, you're right on the money. Um, I think that that has to some degree been lost today. Uh, and 
in some cases, I think I can think of two different scenarios. Uh, you know, even amongst those ministers who uh, maybe they have a seminary degree, they, they are more educated formally, uh, you're going to have people who are still going to play that part of that kind of uh, the skeptic who it just mocks everyone who has anything to do with with Christianity. And so, you know, in this kind of period of, you know, everybody's an expert, everybody's enlightened kind of a thing, uh, you even have people that are going to put those very well-trained and well-educated uh, pastors down. But then on the other hand, you also have those pastors who have entered into the ministry with very little education, very little theological training, very little ministry training, and have never really gone forward or pursued more of that. And, you know, and I think as many people look out over the landscape, they recognize that there are a, a lot of guys out there who don't want to pursue a greater knowledge of Christ. Uh, and ministries start coming down to business models and feelings and all kinds of different stuff. I mean, you can fill in the blank with what you see out there, but that uh, generally people tend to recognize like, okay, look, yeah, you know, hey, this guy's a pastor, but, you know, maybe not necessarily the most astute fellow. And so I think you see that on both ends of the spectrum. But generally, it, it probably also comes down to our culture just being extremely suspicious of Christianity in this time when there seems to be so many other competing worldviews that uh, are speaking very loudly in our day. Well, I, I just want to pipe in before David speaks, but you, you made a statement that they're suspicious of pastors. I think they're suspicious of experts, whether it's a teacher, a coach, a doctor. I can go to the Internet and I, I can now challenge their view. Uh, we see that in sports all the time. Um, you see it in, in doctor's offices. I just go to the yep. website. What does WebMD say? Um, and so here are people that have been trained and now have uh, experience through their career, and yet I, the layman who's been on the Internet for five minutes, am a better expert. And then how bad yeah. is it if we decide, okay, so everybody's an expert, so people stop going to medical school because what's the point anymore? Because you're concerned that people are going to care. Obviously, you're going to have to have a thick skin. I know doctors who get extremely frustrated when people come in knowing exactly what's wrong with them already because they looked on the Internet. And we have to deal with the same thing in ministry. So just because there is uh, more availability of, of, uh, of resources doesn't mean that we should just jettison the idea of a formal training. No, absolutely. And and I think the the reason the church, and I'll come back to Chris's point, specifically the pastor, is, well, we all have the Spirit of Christ. He teaches us all. And those who maybe have a special calling, because that's, we always, I put that in quotes, you can't see my air quotes here, <laughs> but everybody, you know, I have this special calling in my life and I'm supposed to do this. Well, there's this idea that because now I'm untouchable. It, it, you see that when people come into your office as a pastor and they ask for advice, well, God told me. <laughs> okay, well, right. Conversation's over because at this point, you're not really here to get my advice. You're just telling, you want confirmation 
or an, uh, somebody to mm-hmm. pat you on the back with your answer. And we see that in ministry where people say, God told me I'm supposed to do this. That's fine. God may be moving you in that direction, but God is also going to work through the preparation mm-hmm. of preparing you for that thing. I think it goes back to the talents that Samuel Miller is referring to. If we've been given those talents, God's going to do everything uh, in an orderly way to develop those talents as well. He, he makes this statement um, in that in that first uh, opening of his sermon, he says, those who are best instructed in the things of the kingdom of God, most at home in the great system of his truth, and most mightily in the scriptures will be most likely to be the most successful servants of the church. I don't think any of us can disagree with that. Now, that's not to say just because somebody has an education, they're going to be the best servant. I think he's going to constantly beat the drum of also piety um, and 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 uh, that they must be a true believer. But uh, education sure has an advantage over somebody who doesn't have it. And he does say in that point, in, in his first point, it's the very best faculties and attainments that we possess or can possibly acquire. So he's even making... Uh, some room there, recognizing that not everyone's going to be able to access the same level of education, but mm-hmm. he's pushing back against the idea of of minimalism and doing the least amount that you can get away with, rather than uh, doing all that you can to make sure that you're fully prepared. Yeah, no, I think great thoughts on all of this, you guys. You know, Aaron, you had me thinking just a bit ago when you were talking about the internet and stuff. I've watched in certain groups as guys that were well-respected, you know, guys that have, you know, in some cases, you know, doctorates of ministry are coming into this group. They're respected in their field and watching these, you know, armchair theologian, you know, dudes in their twenties coming at these guys, you know, not, not with no respect and, you know, no, no kind of, you know, inflection of, you know, honor or anything, and just ripping into them about this, that, and the other. And and what I've noticed is a lot of those guys will say, I don't even want to interact in stuff like that. I don't even want to interact on the internet. Why? Well, like you said, if everybody's an expert and everybody thinks that they can just, uh, you know, come at me with, you know, with no, uh, none of the information or insider or training or anything. And, uh, and I think the bigger thing also is no respect. Hmm. Um, they're not coming at them to learn. They just think that they're already on equal par. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I find that to be a, a huge problem. And honestly, one of the reasons why I think a lot of guys uh, out there don't want to really engage in that kind of forum. And please hear me on this. This is kind of awkward me saying this, but we have lost a respect for pastors today. And part of that is because I think the educational aspects has has dropped so much that the average American goes to college, right? If you look across the standards, uh, they at least have a bachelor's degree or an associate's degree to stand on. They've been indoctrinated by the local uh, community college or university. And so when the pastor stands there and he his education is maybe not even on par mm. with those who are uh, um, sitting in the pews, of course there's going to be a skepticism and, and this ability to say, well, how do I know? Now, that's not to say, because I came from a church where the pastor was not educated um, um, in, the, in the traditional channels, and his church was filled with doctors and lawyers 
and others who had high educational standards, but he was a student of the word. He knew that scripture right. backwards and forwards. And so I want to be very careful to say that we're not saying the only way that somebody should ever in the pulpit is through the seminary. Although right. I think to just throw the seminary out is to really miss uh, uh, an institution that has been used for great good in developing. I, I wouldn't want to go to a doctor or, or have a lawyer that didn't go through a system mm-hmm. uh, of training that has been tested. And, uh, and I think uh, even in your situation, Chris, there was still guardrails that were in place that before you were allowed to take the pulpit, that um, there was confidence that the people sitting in the pew could be assured that you've been tested on these things. Right. And, you know, it makes me think back to something you've mentioned before, and that is that you know, in times past, the seminary was born out of the local church. Uh, it was born, you know, from the church as you need to train those in the church that were going to be heading into uh, the ministry. And in some sense, that's kind of changed now to where now the seminary is kind of an entirely separate entity uh, and still tries to work together with churches. I don't want to, you know, confuse that point, but it's not to say that that same kind of training and education can't be taking place in a local church level, that those kind of uh, systems and guidelines and you know guardrails, I think as you put it, can't be there within the context of local church or even a group of local churches. Uh, it's to say that in some way there needs to be some kind of standard of identifying those who possess that calling upon their lives and then beginning to disciple them and work with them and train them in such a sense that they gain a full-orbed training uh, in, that would enable them to go out and effectively minister the gospel and administer the Word of God. There we go. Let's take the second point he makes now in his, in his lecture. All right, he says, The next argument which I would urge in favor of a mature and thorough course of preliminary study shall be drawn from the consideration of the extent difficulty and importance of the various departments of knowledge which are necessarily included in such a course. Then he goes on to talk about um, gaining a familiarity with the original languages, with uh, the various heresies and controversies, ecclesiastical histories, all these things that someone might not study just on their own. If it doesn't strike your fancy, you may not seek those things out, especially when you come to uh, talking about the original languages. I know there's a lot of pushback on is that something that people really need to study, even that pastors really need to understand in order to do ministry effectively? So, Let's come back to the original languages, because I know it's a big one. But let's just look at the list he's provided here. He has everything from, class, uh, uh, from church government um, to the composition and delivery of sermons, pastoral care, uh, Unitarian controversy, Pelagian, um, semi-Pelagian controversy. Now, mind you, he this is written nearly 200 years ago, mm-hmm. okay? Spoken nearly 200 years ago. And in, and in these things, as he's talking about them, we're both saying biblical criticism, interpretation, polemic theology. These things are things that he would say are essential for somebody who's going to take and lead a church. When you look through that list, somebody could say, well, I could take these courses now because they're available on the internet. But one of the things I think that would be strikingly important here is the continuity. The foundation of Princeton was built around a plan. In fact, they call it the plan. 
It was the it was the plan of education that when a student entered their seminary, what ultimately the men uh, that they were hoping to produce, and so. All of these classes that they made a decision were necessary were part of the plan. There was continuity. And one of the fears I have is that people say that I'm just going to watch these things on the Internet is, is, is twofold. Number one, you're getting a splattering from different uh, bents theologically because you have a preference for maybe this professor or this professor or maybe even that this one's available and, and, and there's nothing available from this other seminary that's free. And so now I'm getting all these uh, uh, worldviews thrown at me that maybe are not really as cohesive as we like to pretend they are. And so I'm, rather than getting a rifle shot, as I like to say, they're getting a buckshot. They're getting all these pieces, but they're not, they're not together. The other problem I have when people say, I'm just going to go to the Internet and learn, is let's be really honest with ourselves. We all have a bias. And if I have a bias, I may not like history, so I'm not going to really study history mm -hmm. really well. I'm not going to go really in deep in it. Uh, mm -hmm. Or, hey, maybe government, church government, bores me to death. And so I'm not going to study church government. Or maybe your passion is Calvinism, and so you're going to really go deep on Calvinism, but you're uh, clueless on things such as the doctrine of the Trinity. And so I could see where, where we have blind spots in having a, uh, a consistent plan, the plan of Princeton, as they used to call it, helps to guard against that. What are, your, what are your thoughts on that alone before we get to the original, our original language argument? It's important because once you get into ministry, you know that the questions and the issues that you face are not going to be limited to your topics of interest. So if you have never studied church history and those kinds of questions come up, why do we uh, do things the way that we do? Why is our church polity the way that it is? If you don't have any idea of how that developed, you can't answer that question. So being forced into, forced, so to speak, into learning those things that you may not have a natural affinity for is really important because it prepares you for, uh, for future ministry, for future questions. Yeah, and I would say along the same lines, a lot of guys tend to gravitate to one particular area of theology that's kind of their hobby horse. You know, you've got the Calvinism guys where, I mean, they are just going to, you know, go down deep and stay down long on the doctrines of grace. Well, hey, that's great, but you need more than that. Uh, you know, you've got a lot of guys, especially out here in Southern California, you know, for the last uh, 30 years or so, eschatology. Um, you know, so you got guys that are, uh, I don't know why that seems to be such a big deal out here, but you know, the, you got guys that, I mean, they can sit there and, you know, tell you all about, uh, various aspects of eschatology, but they don't know anything about soteriology, uh, homardiology, nothing. Uh, and so it, a lot of it starts to tend to be assumed. There's not a great knowledge of church history, doctrinal history, um, they don't know where any of these things came from. And, and unfortunately, I think that's the reason we actually see a lot of different heretical teachings kind of pop back up is because pastors are up there preaching them from the pulpit and don't even realize, hey, this was condemned as heresy 1,600 years ago. <laughs> but uh, they don't even know what, what it is. Uh, and so, you know, it's funny, even as he mentioned some of these things like Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, they were a deal 200 years ago. I think that's something people need to be aware of now. Mm -hmm. uh, so I do think that that is, like I mentioned earlier, kind of you want a full-orbed uh, education, uh, not just having to hang out in your favorite comfort zones of what you really love 
getting into. And continuity matters because you're getting it. Uh, well, some people say, well, it's too narrow. It's only one perspective. You're only getting it from the Presbyterian perspective or the Baptist perspective. You're not you're not getting uh, pieces. Well, the problem with getting pieces is they're not they're not connected, mm-hmm. and therefore you have blind spots. Um, at least when something's connected or narrow. I remember a conversation I had with a theologian a number of years ago, and he and he said to me, "Focus in one." Uh, one area, focus on one person. What he meant by that was go deep in one person, because if all you're doing is cherry picking from a, from a bunch, you're you're gonna have uh, you're gonna have problems in bringing those things together. Sure, me studying that one the- theologian very well, I'm gonna I'm gonna adapt and and probably even maybe even pick up some of his uh, his uh, weak areas. But it, at least it, in that, I'm consistent, and therefore I can maybe uh, through. Uh, interaction with other people be challenged to then start to refine some of that where those weaknesses lie. But I, I think this idea that all anybody wants to do is just scoop the sugar off the top, you know, uh, but they're not willing to drink uh, and eat uh, of the of the depth of it. I mean, in a beer, who wants to just drink the foam? Not me. I don't want. I don't want the foam. I, you know, and and that's and that's the problem. I think with so much of what happens today, because we are blessed as a people. Think about the uh, the amount of information you have in your cell phone, and and that's not even if you have logos or anything. If you just just the availability through the web of good content that you have, but if all you're doing is picking and choosing, mm-hmm. you're gonna have these real blind spots. So continuity and having a uh, a seminary drive that a good seminary drive that you're going to be a blessed individual for that but again um we said we'd come back to the original language discussion that's a hot topic a lot of seminaries are starting to move away from it um do we need that with the availabilities of computers and that i'm going to throw my opinion out there and i'll shut up but my opinion is man if you don't know the languages you are at such a disadvantage and you are dependent solely on those commentaries to tell you what that language does. And even if you have logos, but you've never had the languages, you're at a disadvantage to understand what logos is doing mm-hmm. or BibleWorks is doing. And so um, that, that's my sense. I want to hear from you guys and what your thoughts, because, David, you're in the throes of it right now with Greek. And, uh, and Chris, um, just from your perspective as a commissioned pastor, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm a I'm a first year Greek student, so I'm dangerous. Uh, I know just <laughs> know just enough to mess stuff up real bad. But uh, as I was heading into that, I was I was wrestling with uh, with my call to ministry in the first place. And one of the things that freaked me out was the fact that if I'm going to go for a an MDiv, I'm going to have to take these languages, and it does seem like a daunting task. And I wrestled with: is it really important? Now being in the middle of it, I'm beginning to see that there are nuances in the language that you don't pick up. Um, you, If you happen to get the right commentary, it might pick it out, but you're not actually gaining that knowledge. You're not actually able to use that knowledge yourself. Um, and, and some are minor, but there are some things in Scripture that aren't so minor in those nuances. Um, so I, I do think that it's a benefit to know uh, I don't think that every pastor is going to use the languages every single uh, uh, week fully. I know guys who who don't even open uh, an English language translation until Saturday night, Sunday morning. Not everybody's going to do that. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Th- throw some love out to him. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and that's impressive. And I think that's great. That actually gave me a, an idea of I, if you have that capability, why would you not want to do that? Why wouldn't you want to prepare out of the original text? Um, and even on top of that, though, I think the idea of, of the discipline that it takes to learn another language, especially the older you get, I know they say we, we're not able to learn as easily as we get older um, or as quickly, especially when it comes to language. So it does take a level of discipline and commitment over a, a reasonably long period of time to get a firm grasp on this. And that, that more than just simply the knowledge, it's gaining uh, discipline and uh, which is going to go into your sermon prep. It's going to go into how you how you work and how you minister uh, in the future. Yeah, and coming from my particular uh, perspective, I think you know I've seen two different kind of other sides of this. I mean, the one side I've seen is guys who say, "Man, if you don't read Greek, you just shouldn't even be in ministry." And then I've seen the other guys that are like, "Ah, you don't need any of that, man. You know, you just need the Holy Spirit." Uh, and you know, I, and I think that there's problems with both sides of that. Um, you know, my experience has been, you know, I was laughing there when you mentioned you're a first year Greek student and you, you know, <laughs> just enough to be dangerous because I, I've kind of recognized that I was at that point once too, where I was studying, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to learn about the languages and I'm hearing some of these guys making a lot of, uh, you know, I think what Carson would call exegetical fallacies, Mm. you know, and recognizing, okay, wait a minute, you can't do that. That's not how the language works. And realizing that there's a lot of guys out there who know just enough Greek to be dangerous with it. And so, uh, you know, what I've, what I've tried to do is kind of learn from that and be able to, uh, and I would say I don't read Greek. Um, but I would say I probably know enough about, the basics to uh, to hopefully keep from making a lot of the mistakes I've seen guys make with uh, some of those uh, fallacious types of uh, interpretations, and also to at least be able to interact with the material that I've got in front of me. I, I do have Logos, so I'm I'm in there. I'm looking at it, and you know, and even as I'm working through commentaries and stuff, if I'm working through you know g- commentaries that are coming out of the Greek, that uh, I can recognize what's going on there. Now, would I think it would be even further beneficial for me to have a greater knowledge of it? Absolutely. Uh, You know, hey, the more the better. Uh, And so I would say, is this something where it is absolutely necessary for you to be able to, you know, fluently read Greek? I would probably say no. But on the other side of it, do you need to have some type of, of education concerning these languages? I'd say absolutely yes, uh, because otherwise, like you said, you're now at the mercy of whoever you're reading, mm-hmm. and you don't even know enough to look at it and go, eh, I'm not so sure that that really flies. Yeah, and you know, I, I'm going to share a little bit of my story as I have dyslexia, and you, as you probably have, can tell in, in these podcasts, I stumble over words at times in that. Learning Greek was intimidating. Learning Hebrew was even more intimidating until I discovered, man, dyslexics do great in Hebrew. If you don't know why, (laughs) you'll figure out why later. Um, But one of the things I really want to stress in this is that I think the, the central issue is I didn't understand English. I think a lot of pastors today are bad at English. They can't write, right? Uh, Why, why can't Johnny preach book is uh, they can't read and write. And that's so true. And I think one of the things that 
ultimately was required as I went forward in uh, the ministry was I had to work at my English skills. Well, Greek and Hebrew forced that. What, you know, what's the noun? What is a verb? What are, what are these things doing in English? Okay, now I can start to understand the basics of Greek grammar. I can right. start to understand the foundations. Um, I don't know that we can diagram sentences in English anymore. You know, and that's a problem in our society as we go forward. That's a problem, especially in the pulpit when we're handling something as precious as the very word of God. So I I just want to I want to put that out there because I do believe that is a very, very, very important thing is that we understand that the language itself has great value because God has chosen to give us his word in a written language, Greek and Hebrew, and Aramaic, right? Um, and I've heard people say, you don't need Hebrew because you could just learn Greek and you have the Septuagint. And if the Septuagint was good enough for Jesus, it should be good enough for us. Okay, you can make a case that if you're only going to learn one language, learn Greek, and you're going to have at least the benefit of the Septuagint. But how much better are we if we are willing to invest that? To have people say it doesn't matter at all, I I just I cringe at that. I cringe. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I was down at the Master's Seminary a while back, a number of years ago, I think, for the uh, Shepherds Conference. And I believe it was uh, Dr. MacArthur down there who made the comment that they were bringing in young men first year in a seminary and wanting them to get them into Greek and Hebrew and realizing they don't even know English. Mm. You know, they, they're not, they don't even possess a great enough understanding of English grammar sure. to then be able to move them on to teach them another language. So they were, they were having to go back and teach English before they could even get them into the original languages of Scripture. You know, one of the one of the stories that Samuel Miller ta- talks about is the story of Calvin. Calvin had written his first rendition of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, and uh, he was uh, viewed by some as to be probably the most l- learned man in Europe. And he was actually on his way to further his education when they strong-armed him to stave in Geneva. And if and if you think about that, here's a man that even in his understanding. He desired more understanding. Mm-hmm. I'm not convinced that a lot of men in the ministry have that kind of heart. Now, some would say, well, Calvin was a scholar. I'm not a scholar. I'm a pastor. I go back to pastor theologian. That's mm-hmm. who we need to be. We need to be able to stand in the gap. We need to be students of theology, students of the word. Yep. And if you're not, I don't know that you have any place in there. Again, how you get that information, we can discuss and debate and work through, but it's important that we're students. Let's go to the third point that he makes here, Chris. Yeah, third point says this, a third consideration which shows the importance of having the preparatory studies in theology as thorough and complete as possible is that he who does not lay a good foundation in the beginning will never be likely to supply the deficiency afterwards. This one is one of my favorites because he makes a point I think a lot of guys say is, I'll worry about it later. Mm-hmm. They want to kick the can down the road. And he constantly refers to his young friends here. He says, if you leave seminary with just a mere splattering of theological knowledge, with what you know to be uh, a scanty and inadequate foundation, there is every probability that you will go through life and all the way to your graves with nothing more. <laughs> and I think that's so important to say that you can't put off to tomorrow what you need today. Mm-hmm. I think you have to be disciplined. How many hours does the average pastor spend on Netflix? 
uh, or Hulu or whatever, or Facebook, or tweeting out his little his little bumper sticker statement so that he can get known. We should be in the Word. There's a reason why we used to call it the study, mm. and and I think pastors have to dig in. Yes, but let's be honest. As a pastor, I have a responsibility not only, um, not only to uh, the sermon. But I have responsibility to the flock. I got to go uh, visit people in the hospital. I have to deal with crises through counseling. I, I there's so many things pouring on me. And on top of that, if I start to give things up later because I didn't do it in the in the front part, the foundational part of my prior uh, ministry, what I'm going to do is start robbing during my ministry. So I might rob from um, going to hospital visitations because I need to be in my study. And I know pastors that did that. They gave all their time to their study that they neglected other things. That's dangerous. The sheep need a shepherd. And you read that in, in Ezekiel, right? It's so important. Or the worst thing that you can rob later is your family. Because now I got to spend all my time studying that I, I rob from my children. I rob time from mm-hmm. my wife because I can't, I got to be at the hospital. I also need to be preparing for my sermon. I also, but there's, there's a lot of help when it's done on the front side. And I think there's, there's wisdom to why seminary or theological training is where it is prior to um, the actual ordination and mm-hmm. calling. Not to mention when you go through this, the, the full process and you get a full, uh, full-fledged uh, look at, at theology, um, you're going to deal with things that you might not deal with. So you get started in ministry, all of a sudden you find out, oh, this isn't really what I believe on this, and now you're changing your views on on baptism, or you're changing your views on eschatology, because you never really studied that on the front end because you didn't think it was important. It's uh, He uses the example here of a, of a builder or a workman, which I relate to because I used to build houses, you're not just going to go out and start throwing up walls without knowing what you're doing because you might get a little ways, but then you're going to run into a problem where uh, you built the foundation wrong. So you didn't start off right. So you need that training before you go into to just doing things and thinking you'll get around to it later. Because like you said, either you're never going to get to it or when you do get to it, something else is going to pay. And isn't, yeah. it, isn't it fair, Chris, to say that you know in scripture it talks about counting the cost. You don't you don't you don't go into building a big project until you've counted the cost. Mm. And I think too many people run into the ministry not counting the cost of what it means to actually be a student of the word prior. And if you're not willing to commit to that preparation, maybe you have no business. Not maybe. You have no business in the ministry itself. Yeah. Again, I want to back up a little bit and say there's different ways to get that education. But to think you can get it while you're doing ministry that's dangerous. You know, and I would even be the first to admit that, especially in maybe the early couple years of, uh, of my pastorate, uh, you know, I was fairly young and I had done a lot of study, but I never had a lot of my views really pressed back into. It was all within one stream. And as I began to really broaden my theological horizons, I began realizing that, uh, a lot of things that I had heard said very loud and very often were not very true. And so there was a decent amount of sharpening the axe during some of those earlier years. And uh, and I really spent quite a bit of time diving into a lot of those issues and beginning to examine them, uh, utilizing a lot of other resources. And 
one of the things I think that does concern me today, especially you were talking a lot about, you know, just jumping onto the Internet. And what does the Internet have to say? What are, what's the interwebs opinion on this? I watch a lot of young people that they they want to learn theology, but they're very quick to just want to latch on to the right doctrine and they don't know how they got there. And they'll listen to whoever happens to be the most outspoken person at the time and they go, oh, okay, well, this is my view on this now. And they can give a list of proof text for it, but they've never really had it pressed back into. And in some cases, I've watched guys jump from view to view literally like days you know, a couple weeks and all of a sudden their entire theological position has shifted. And I'm going, what in the world? I mean, you know, some of these things took me years to work through mm. and, and and you just switched in like seven days. <laughs> like, how did that happen? And so I think that, again, there, that's something to be said for being in an environment where you're going to be challenged and pressed back into. And also like the point that we're on here, you don't want to be sharpening the axe while you're cutting down the tree. Uh, you you want to get that preparatory work done before you actually have to get the work done. Yeah, he actually goes on in, in the fourth point that he makes. He says it's uh, the, the mature and leisurely training for the gospel ministry is highly important for the purpose of that intellectual and moral discipline. Uh, which is of no less value to a minister of Christ than theological learning. And that's where he's making the point that in the course of study, you're going to be faced with those things. You're going to have your views tested. You're going to unlearn many things which have been learned and correct many erroneous views, he says, and and juvenile propensities, which nothing but time and suitable <laughs> associations accompanied with much observation, watchfulness, prayer, and conflict can possibly under God enable him to accomplish. So praise God that he uses, like in your situation, you learn, learn those things in the fire, in the process. But how much better would it be if, if we were able to more often learn those things in an environment where, where um, you're with, with peers and, and teachers and professors rather than where you're ministering to other people and uh, potentially causing damage? One of the things he brings up that I thought was really just so true is the mellowing and the softening that can be allowed to happen in those three years or four years or five years of preparation. Because it, it, we all, what do we always joke about? That you need to put a cage around a young Calvinist, mm. right? Mm -hmm. The cage stage. Because they're just going to come out and be ferocious. But as they mature, there's a mellowing. And there's, there's wisdom there because it's gained knowledge. And it's beginning to be applied. And, and we need that in every aspect. Because we could be, there's hills we're willing to die on that maybe we, we need to soften on. Mm -hmm. And maybe there's some areas that need to be tightened up and we need to be more convicted on that in our, in our early days we weren't. And a lot of that can happen. Um, I remember sitting in the uh, classroom at seminary for the first time and being blown away by the men that were around me. And their knowledge and their information and the things that they had read, it really challenged me to read more and to get. And I thought I was a pretty good reader before I, I sat in that in that room with some of those men. And that's that's good. It's humbling. It rips away some of the husk of our pride and exposes some area that that we really need to be challenged and and, and the finger needs to be poked in our chest. Better it happen in the seminary classroom. Than it happened when we're when we're pastoring a church, right? 
because the damage that can be done in the church and is done, and we see it in the headlines all the time. And I'm not just talking about sexual fa- uh, failures, moral failures of 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 our of our pride and our arrogance, and sometimes the way in which uh, pastors are all about building their kingdom rather than seeing the the greater kingdom of Christ. And so yeah. I just think there's a lot to be said there that can occur that we oftentimes we just want to hurry up and fast track and get through it as fast as possible. I know, David, one of the things I've told you even since you began seminary was enjoy it. Right. Don't try to just get through it. Enjoy it. And I think that's one of the things I try to tell all my men as they pursue seminary is enjoy it, savor it, because it's a sweet time as you grow and as God is sanctifying you through it. Yeah. And I would add one thing on this. Um, You know, I I mentioned a little my own story on this, so coming from my direction, but I also think it's important to note that seminary is not an absolute cure for these things either. Um, you know, That's I've right. known friends that have gone through, they've gotten their masters and the next thing you know, they're still changing views on various things afterwards, uh, or, or even gone through and, and like what you were just talking about, come out very, you know, cocky and arrogant and sure of themselves and ready to build their own empire for the kingdom of God mm-hmm. and, and whatever. Yeah. Well, um, well said. In fact, can I add to that, Chris, that yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think our point is not that seminary is the end all be all. I want to be clear about that, but I, I obviously have a high view of seminary. I really right, try right. to encourage my guys to go there. I think the point that we really want to drive home is what Samuel Miller says when he says, the truth is many of the ministers of our church enter on their public works by a good deal too early in life. And I mm-hmm. think that's so true. Too many people are rushing to get into ministry without any training. And that is absolutely uh uh, devastating to a church, and the problem is churches are taking them. Churches are grabbing them. They just we they mm-hmm. there's such a need for ministers that sometimes they'll grab anyone. Oh, he's got a great vision or he's got great passion, but he has no knowledge. He has no yeah. understanding. And oh, if you're a driven, type A, outgoing guy who can articulate a basic bit of biblical doctrine, uh, you know, there's a good chance. There's a church out there that'll hire you. <laughs> well, and the worst part is we see this with church planning. And you see that church planners in their 20s, because they're ferocious and they're, you can knock them down there and get back up and we, we rah, rah, rah. Everybody's excited about that aggressiveness. But are these men seasoned? Right. Are they matured? And again, I, I think there's steps we can take and, and, we, and, and their sanctification that a process like a, a plan an organized plan of training uh, affords. Yeah, and even at that, I would even add on the church planting side, sure, they may have all that entrepreneurial drive, but are they shepherds? Right, yeah. You know, are they pastors? Are they theologians? Not, uh, you know, do they have a great sense of, you know, planning and, and, you know, community organizing and all that kind of thing? That's great, but (laughs) if they're not a pastor, then... What are they doing? And sometimes people attack, well, do they, you know, ministries people, and do they really even love people? They just build about building their kingdom. Some of the best church planners I know love people. That's the whole reason they got in it. They, they want to see people know Christ. Mm-hmm. They love God, and they love, they love people, and that was, that was the goal, was evangelism. The problem was they were nothing more than a, a, an evangelist. They, they, they yep. weren't shepherds. They weren't pastors because they weren't trained to be. And nobody was really making sure and saying, hey, you need to be a little bit more seasoned. Or, hey, think about one of the things that Samuel Miller said was essential. Church government. 
Have you studied the different various forms of church government? Are you even familiar with how uh, the church should run? Or is it just you're just adopting a certain model because this tribe is willing to pay for you? Right. That's so dangerous. Where's yeah. the conviction? Where's where's the where's the uh, 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 the truth being being lifted and elevated up so that that when you're teaching your people, you can say, well, we're only really this because this group was willing to pay for the church plant or is no with conviction. We're this. And here's why. Right. We're this. Right. Well, on point five here, he goes on to say this. A further argument in favor of a regular and complete course of theological study may be drawn from the opinion and practice of our fathers in all past ages. And he, he goes on there to talk about, uh, you know, the Jews in the Old Testament and the priesthood, uh, talking about his duties, that he couldn't do those until he was 30 years old. And likewise, he ends up mentioning uh, Jesus, who entered the ministry at 30 years old. And so I, he now draws... you're just being a legalist, Chris. No, <laughs> man. <laughs> yeah, you know, and again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, hey, you know, let's set an absolute line right there. But is there some wisdom in that? It's in, in... it's funny in Presbyterian world we call them elders. There's ruling elders and teaching elders, and yet our elder has a connotation of aged one. Mm. <laughs> Right, and yet they're, they're, we, everybody wants to push past that, and so I think you're right. Keep keep going, Chris. What, what else are you going to share? No, no. I, you know, he goes on to talk about how uh, oftentimes people talk about the uh, you know the the fields are white for harvest, and we've we've just got to get people out there. And he he kind of says, well, hang on, <laughs> you know, look, the fields were white for harvest back in Jesus' day too. Yet he still waited until he was 30 years old to enter into the ministry. So, so there's that, uh, the sense of needfulness, but at the same time, that doesn't negate proper preparation. Mm. And I think that the whole point he's even getting at there, too, is, you know, I don't know about you guys, but a lot changed for me between 20 years old and 30 years old. Yeah. Yeah. There was a great deal of seasoning and maturing that happened in that period of time. Um, you know, marriage for me, marriage and, and children and, you know, all of the things that went along with that very much, uh, changed me. And, and so I think even in just, even without those things, just that period of time is a time of great maturing in a young man's life. It, it's funny because in, in the church planning world, one of the things we often say is, uh, when, when somebody gets married, there's a little bit of that and they have their first children, they, their first child, they, they can still be selfish, Right. Because maybe their wife is taking care of the child all the time, so they're still able to be selfish. They have two children. That's a good sign because now they can't be selfish uh, in the way they could when they only had one child or when they were just mm -hmm. newly married and had no children. But you had that third child, man. You, you go from man to man to zone. That's a game changer. There's, there's, there's age there. Now you say, well, it doesn't matter what age. But the, the, the experience of life changes you. And, right. and why are we rushing to get people into play positions of eldership? Because this applies to me as much about ruling elders as it does about teaching elders in the sense of when, we, when we're seeking those out to be leaders in the church, seasoned age matters. And it seems to be something about age 30. Now, again, we're not going to be legalistic about it. But even you mentioned Jesus didn't, doesn't begin his ministry till age 30. Uh, there was obviously a need uh, for for the harvest was was uh, uh, the fields were white for harvest. There was definitely a, a need for that. Jesus uses that illustration in his own teaching, 
But even when the Apostle Paul comes on the scene, he he goes to uh, and he gets all of his training before he even goes out. Right. And so yeah. and yet when he calls about ministers, he wants qualified men. I think we lower the bar of qualification based upon need. We just need to get people out there. And we see this in church planning, but we also see it in church revitalization. We see it in the church in, 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 in finding Sunday school leaders and teachers uh, all the way to elders. We find, well, we just need, need, need. So we quickly grab, well, why don't we adjust some of our needs? Maybe you need to scale down your Sunday school program. Maybe you need to call back a little bit of the number of elders you're looking for in your local church. Maybe you need to, to think long and hard about um, the getting a seasoned person to come along with a younger person. Uh, there's just ways that we, we need to be more, uh, not lower the bar. And I think it's one of the things we want to be heard to say throughout this whole thing is even in Chris's case where he was a commissioned pastor, the bar was not lowered. You still had to be examined, but they yeah. gave you some latitude on how you gained that information. And yet even in, even in that system, you were still classified different than a teaching other and some people may balk at that and push back on that but there was a sense that they respected uh the amount of of of, of knowledge and and experience that were necessary too often it's it's that we're making decisions out of fear uh like you were talking about we've got a the field white for harvest we gotta we gotta fill this spot we gotta fill this role rather than trusting god as sovereign and going through the process samuel miller makes the argument that that one well-trained, well-prepared minister is better than 50 who are just shooting from the hip. And mm-hmm. I think that's, I think that's yeah. true. I don't think you used that language, but uh, it, it is better to, to have people who are sufficiently prepared and, and equipped for the ministry. Again, we've said it many times already uh, today that seminary is not the one be-all, end-all. Different cultures are going to do things differently. Different socioeconomic places, there are going to be different things available, but that there is time and preparation and experience. And uh, the fact we talk about age 30, that freaks people out because you're old at that point. <laughs> because it depends on what side of 30 exactly. you sit on. Yeah. But we're so used to getting everything immediately and as quickly as possible. And that's not usually what's the most healthy for us or for those that we are ministering to. And one of the yeah. things he also says about this age 30, and I, I'm throwing this out because he's repeated it many different ways. You know, the priests in the Old Testament, Jesus, um, you look at um, even the councils of the early church. It was age 30 before somebody was qualified. And I, I just I think we've got to be really careful and we really have to be checking ourselves when we're grabbing people younger than that to throw them into leadership mm-hmm. of of these positions. Now, that's not to say that they 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 shouldn't be brought on to apprenticeships and things like that. Absolutely, we want to be developing them, but training is is something they should be brought into, not just full fledged leadership. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, we're on to point number six. He says another consideration in support of the doctrine for which I contend is that the present state of the world, and especially of our own country, calls for more various and profound knowledge in ministers of the gospel than was demanded in former times. Now, he's talking over 100 years ago. Nearly 200 years yeah, ago. About how, how much more educated people were and how readily available books were and resources were. And this is long before you've got 
uh, all the information you could possibly need in your pocket. Um, and, and the the basic expectation of people in America is if you're going to get a job, you have to have at least a bachelor's degree. And now it's moving on even further past that. Um, so the people that we're ministering to are, generally speaking, uh, knowledgeable and educated. And sometimes we'd probably say, uh, think they know more than they do, but because that information is so easily attainable. He has a lot he uh, he says in this uh, a six point that, that really grabbed my attention. Um, a couple of the things he, is he was kind of walking through this idea of of knowledge and stuff, kind of coming back to the church planners. Listen to what he says. He says, Men of feeble minds and small attainments may perhaps do good by sitting down in old settlements, where there is much knowledge, prudence, and piety, and where other ministers are at hand to counsel and aid them. So he says, there is a place where some of these younger people can go, but he says, in circumstances of this kind, I have known such men to truly be useful in the ministry. But there, they are by no means adapted to be sent out as pioneers into new and destitute regions where everything is to be commenced and organized and where all the skills ad- address learning, prudence, piety, knowledge of the heart and uh, the wiles of Satan are so uh, daunting that a minister can possibly bring to his aid are greatly nay and indispensably needed there. And so basically he's saying, Okay, maybe in a safe zone where an existing church, where another pastor's there that can be brought on and, and, and serve there and, and be cared for, or even in a, in a church in a community where some other, some other pastors there that can, that can lend a helping hand. But the pioneer work. Now, what's funny about this is pioneer work was probably about Michigan, where we're at right now, right? <laughs> that was pioneer work back then. But and, and the, the California wasn't even thought of at that time, Chris, okay? Nope. <laughs> but, but what's unreal to me is how much 200 years ago this applies to today we're doing the exact opposite in the pioneer work of church planning where we send out young guys who are not prepared and we're sending them into something that he would say that's absolute foolishness these people are experiencing in those pioneer works the 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 work of the enemy uh, Satan himself working against them, uh, the the needs of having uh, good knowledge on, on not only doctrine but even church history and also church government, uh, the understanding of how to how to work with people and care and minister and evangelize and all these things, and you're sending your newest, youngest, uh, m- least knowledgeable, mm-hmm. least experienced people to do this work. And that's the part that really got me in this sixth point that he makes and as he addresses uh, his audience here is that that is dangerous. What are your thoughts on that, Chris? Because I know you have been a church planner. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely right on. I mean, I can remember being at church planting, you know, boot camps and conferences and things like that and watching as thousands of, you know, early 20-somethings are there many of whom to be assessed and look at being sent out as planters, you know, some of them looking at just parachuting into cities, as they say, and and planting there. And I look here, you know, just even a half a decade later from some of those, I'm like, where, where are all these guys now? Um, you know, it was highly romanticized. And the next thing you know, everybody feels called to be a church planter. Um, you know, and I remember even some of the people who were teaching at those conferences were saying, 
that you know they've even watched as one person after another has just dropped out. They've either become morally disqualified or they've left the ministry or they've left the faith. Uh, you know, and I mean, who knows? And I think that it's a huge problem when you got people, like you said, that are the least educated, least experienced, uh, and you're going to take them and send them out into the great unknown to go plant out there with very little support, uh, you know, maybe support from a distance, but no real support there around them. Uh, the, the, the odds of failure are super high. Yeah. Uh, and, and I would say, you know, as you know, a church planter, I want to be equipped. I want to make sure I've got the, the training that I need. I want to know what I'm getting into and what I'm going to be doing and how I need to be doing it. And I want the support of, you know, others around me as I'm going to do that. Um, if you are going to go out into pioneer work, you need to make sure that you're called and equipped for that. It, it's it's a whole different thing. The, the fear I have is failure in a probably a different way many people take it. And I think you mean it the same way I do, which is my, my fear of their failure is they'll actually succeed. And what I mean by that is that they'll draw people to themselves, they'll build a kingdom, but those people that they now are discipling have all their disadvantages. All They could be preaching heresy. <laughs> they, 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 that's my fear, because we're not just talking about a pragmatic, oh, they lost money and they had to close down the building, and that happens to some, but my fear of them failing is they actually accumulate people and turn it into a synagogue of Satan, as the Westminster Confession yeah. says. Yeah, you, there's more than one way to fail, that's oh, for sure. Oh, my goodness, that... That's so uh, 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 troubling to me as I sit here and think about the fact is they could actually be successful by the standards of the world or successful even by the standards of most uh, denominations, but ultimately uh, be leading people farther away from the truth. Yeah. And and that is just absolutely uh, d- uh, discouraging to think about. One of the things, I'm probably going to get some hate mail for this statement, but uh, just send it to Chris, please. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but here it is. I hear so often people throw out Charles Haddon Spurgeon as being, hey, he started preaching as a young, young uh, teenager, a young man. And, uh, and so here's the example. Well, first of all, that's the exception, not the rule. Right. Number two, what people don't realize about Spurgeon is he battled depression most of his life. Now, I'm going out on a limb here. There's probably a lot of reasons why. But who's to say some of that wasn't the weight of carrying church and people when he wasn't fully equipped for it? And the guilt and all the things that you wrestle with as a young preacher put in position to make big league decisions, but you're not mature enough to do that unnecessary weight. Now, people would say, but look how successful and look how good it was. Look, I'm a big fan of Spurgeon. But number one, exception to the rule. (laughs) Number two, what were the costs? What were the costs that we're totally unaware of um, by doing that? And I think we better be very careful. It's we're talking about uh, a good, better, best Mm -hmm. process here. And don't we want what's best? Best for the church, best for the glory of God, best ultimately even for the, the, the pastor, I should say ultimately for God, but, but best for the, what's better for the, um, the best for the pastor themselves so, yeah. and their families, their wives, their children. Samuel Miller uses some pretty harsh language talking about the types of guys that we're talking about here who, who rush into it, especially these really um, charismatic type 
uh, personalities who draw people to themselves. And he says, that candidate for the ministry who is either too lazy or too narrow-minded to take the requisite pains to qualify himself for these duties may think himself very conscientious and may give himself great credit for being moderate and humble in his views, but he is an, an infatuated man. He is not merely under a mistake. He is unfaithful to himself, to the church, and to the master who he professes to love. Whoa. That's pretty strong language, and you may agree or disagree, but um, it gives you something to think about is by rushing, by speeding the process along, by insisting that, that uh, whether or not guys would say this, God, God needs me to, to, to plant this church or else this, this neighborhood's not going to be reached. Um, he's saying that you're actually being unfaithful to the call. You're being harmful, and it's, it's something to chew on. You know, one of the things I've wrestled with, people have asked me, and I've had young people say, hey, Pastor, I'm going to start a podcast, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start a, a blog. Hey, there's a higher responsibility for teaching. And uh, just to do that, and to do it all by yourself, and to do it without the authority. And you say, well, I'm under the authority of the church. Well, then you're expecting the church leadership to listen to every podcast, and I guess the church leadership should do that if they're going to endorse you to do that. But I'm, I'm concerned about the rogues. I'm concerned about people that are just putting their viewpoints out there because everybody's an expert. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody wants to be heard. Everybody is about building themselves in their kingdom. But again, I go back to what he says. They're unfaithful to themselves. They're unfaithful to the church. And mostly, they're unfaithful to the master they profess to love. Wow. When you think about Mm -hmm. it in that perspective, we better be very careful before we rush into ministry, before we rush into ultimately uh, doing a service for the kingdom uh, through our blogs, our our podcasts, uh, taking leadership in a church or whatever aspect. So, you know, as, as a pastor... I'm credentialed through a presbytery uh, in a denomination uh, that, 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 that joins together in that. I was examined by that presbytery. If my views are out of line, I can be held accountable by mm-hmm. that presbytery. But when you have all these rogue uh, teachers out there, who's holding them accountable? Who's, who's, who's holding the line? Where's the, where's the safeguards? And what's their education uh, in, 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 in doing what they're doing? I know what I'm giving right now is not a popular view. And I know we truly may get hate mail on this. But I just want to share that I truly believe that you are not doing the church a service if you have not and are not being prepared to speak publicly for the name of the gospel and the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a dangerous thing. Uh- Well, number seven that he goes on to list here says this, the position which I wish to establish is still further confirmed and its great importance illustrated by the humiliating facts that learning is at present at an, a low ebb among the clergy of the Presbyterian church. He's picking on our Presbyterians here. But but he but it's a he's it's picking a, on his own tribe. He's so picking that's on his okay. own tribe. So and we got <laughs> we're gonna make this a little bigger than just the the tribe. Um, but I think it does fit because I'm from the Presbyterian tribe, and I think I think it's true. He makes a point here. He says, "Have not lawyers and physicians become more learned and able, as well as more numerous, than they were forty or fifty years ago?" Remember, he's writing this two hundred nearly two hundred years ago. <laughs> In general, I believe they have. He states, and so he says, "And have not our clergy? You will ask." Uh, made a corresponding improvement 
In general, I'm persuaded they have not. I really believe one great cause is the prevailing excessive and criminal haste to be licensed and to get into the field of active labor. The means of more mature study and the excitements to more mature study have been constantly increasing, but both the means and the excitements have been lost upon a large number of our candidates. And when a rapid improvement might have been expected, a real decline, if I mistake not, has been silenced, uh, a steady um, and ongoing. What, what I want to grab a hold of here is he then uses the example of a comparison of Edwards. Mm-hmm. And he says, you would think that under Edwards was this great boom and these guys uh, developed that. He says, but then the generation after Edwards, what happened? And you had great seminaries. You had great opportunities to do that. It's because things regressed, not progressed. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that, guys, that I, I, I think we could, we could wrestle with why. Um, how was Edwards trained? We know that he served under his grandfather. We know that he went to seminary. We know that he was a brilliant guy anyway. But not even just um, Edwards, Davies, and Finley he gives examples of. These were men that seemed to stand on head and shoulders, and what they produced seemed to be solid and good. If you if you don't know the history, Edwards actually served as pre- uh, president of Se- uh, Princeton Seminary for a short bit be- right before he died. But in that, you look back and you think, okay, well, then what's the production? And what, and, what, and what Miller is saying is there's been such a push to fill pulpits, such a push to get, get people out that things have fallen off and that ultimately what we're producing is not as solid and not as good. And so right, we're, we're going for quantity rather than quality. Yeah. What are your guys' thoughts on that today, 200 years later? Ain't nothing changed. <laughs> it, it hasn't. And, and one of the concerns I've heard from many people is what ultimately has happened is, is that it's become about money. It's become about making money. Seminaries has become more business oriented. Um, what used to be attached to the local church is now detached. And uh, there's a lot of different ways. And they're just trying to push people out, push people through. Look, there were guys that I went to seminary with that I, whoa, you know, that guy may be a brilliant guy in the classroom, but I don't know that he's, he's really has the piety or the heart to serve in the local church. And I think that's one of the things we also have, also have to wrestle with. And that's where ultimately you look at, he uses the word uh, brought under care and then licensed would be the next step, that these men are licensed to preach. Uh, that as we move from being brought under care to licensure, there's a great examination that's supposed to take place. The seminaries have their job, and they're you know what they're they're gonna be struggling with how do we make money, how do we pay these professors, how do we continue to exist? But it's the job of the denominations to make sure that the men that that are licensed and called out are men uh, that that can handle the word rightly, have good piety, their families are intact. And are mature in the faith to be to fulfill the calling they have, and I think that's what he's pushing at. Yeah, he's also uh, making the point that um, there's a a reluctance to undertake what it takes to be for Presbyterians, for example. Um, you've got to go through the the process, or if you're not getting a, an MDev, there's still a long process of, mm-hmm. of being a, a commission pastor. 
Um, so a lot of these guys are, and I've, I've thought about it. I've been tempted. I could go be a pastor at a, at a Baptist church right now. or Non-denominational, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, any, anywhere that, that's not going to require me to have an MDiv, I've got a, a pretty decent theological understanding. I could probably get past some, some tests. So there is, there's a heavy weight on the churches to do that. But I also think, are we stirring up guys enough to see the importance of taking taking that whole process on, or or are we just trying to to move them along? And I think that's part of what he's he's lamenting there is there aren't enough men who are willing to actually go through that whole process and and submit to that. Y- yesterday, I, I read this paper, um, this lecture, with uh, the church planners that we have a, a very diverse group. Um, some non-denominational, some Baptist, um, some Presbyterian. And as we sat down and we read together, it was interesting to hear the lament of all of them that, yeah, this is this is needs to be a bigger deal. And even the men they're hoping to produce from their own churches, how do we safeguard, how do we do this? Because there is such a, uh, everybody's trying to figure ways to lower the expectation. Let me say this, I want to plant churches. I want to plant churches even in, in, in places that other people aren't even dreaming about planting churches, uh, the poor urban um, uh, communities. When I look at that, I recognize we've got to make education acceptable. You mm-hmm. can't just have a standard and then not make it accessible mm-hmm. to people. And I believe that's the beauty of the online learning. That's the beauty of the relationship with the local church. And I think there is a partnership between the seminary and the local church in fulfilling that, where there's opportunities to preach and to teach and, and all of those things, but there's also the expectation that, that we're, we're, we're training people, we're rising up, we're not lowering the bar, but we're, but we're helping people get there. Um, and I think that's the responsibility on all of us to do that. And, and one of the things I, we, we had a, a church planner, uh, Brian Evans, that we uh, commissioned as a commissioned pastor. And he went through our presbytery. He was examined. He did exceptionally well. Now, he, he's just, he's a brilliant guy. His story is amazing. If you've never listened to it, you can listen to it, one of the former podcasts. But what's, what's so incredibly uh, encouraging is theologically, and, and in his heart for that neighborhood, here was a man that was able to walk through the process and he didn't flinch at the process. He didn't try to find which a quick way around it. Now, he, he quit school when he was in high school and never finished. So he had to get his, eventually get his GED. He never went to college. He's you know in his 40s. Um, so we had a guy that was very well trained. We took him through some coursework. We, we, we walked with him. He ended up following a very similar process like Chris I want you to hear us saying this that we're not just saying everybody needs to go to seminary Mm -hmm. but we are saying the process matters and I think there needs to be a clear plan in in developing uh, individuals for the ministry don't lower the bar and I think that's the thing that I listen to the church planners at the cohort um, uh, say so clearly they lamented seeing how many of our denominations how many of our of our networks at times will lower the bar just to try to make sure we can get people out there and hopefully that's not said of your local church your local denomination um, uh, your local church plant right and what you're yeah. saying is is there is a heavy responsibility on on the local church to sometimes you got to get creative with what what you do whether it's on an individual basis whether it's on a basis of that particular church i'm very blessed right now i would not be able to go through the program that i'm going without without uh, first pres helping me it helps to cover some of the some of the cost of it and some of the process and that's a blessing that um 
the church is able to provide. And, and whatever the church is able to do, we should be able to help guys go through the process, whatever the, the circumstance is. And it sometimes requires a bit of, a bit of effort, a bit of creative thinking. Um, but there are, there are lots of avenues available now, more than, than probably ever. We just have to be looking for them and, and be willing to uh, put, some, put some work into it. Yep. Totally agree, guys. And, you know, it, it really does tie into the last point of all of this of what you guys are saying. That our country, and especially some part of it, stand in need of nothing at this moment next to the sanctifying grace of God so much as a larger supply of truly able, pious, and well-trained ministers of the gospel. Quality yes. is vital. Quantity is kind of important, too. There are a lot of people. There are a lot of big cities. There are a lot of little rural areas. We need a lot of well-trained pastors. Yeah, um, we need more, and we need better. That's right. There's, the, he, there's a huge—this is a huge section— uh, this last point is he's kind of wrapping things up in his sermon and and bringing it to his end. But um, when you guys kind of look at this last point, what are what are some of the things that stand out just from maybe his his sermon itself that we can kind of reiterate? Because obviously our listeners don't have the benefit of of reading of, of already have read this like we have. But what are some things maybe you want to pull out from this last major section? The thing that stood out to me is he says. Um, that the Lord is a God of order and not of confusion in all of his churches. And he has never made mental imbecility, ignorance, rashness, and incompetence proper qualifications for doing his work. Mm. Again, he's being harsh, but look at how many how many guys we've celebrated in the past because they are so bombastic and loud and uh, crass. And uh, that's never one of the things that's listed as... as uh, as a good quality as something that is required of a minister of the word. Um, again, I, I appreciate his, his, uh, his straightforwardness, his harshness in it, where so many times we look at a guy like that and say, well, he's just being real. He's just connecting with, uh, with his audience. And, and I don't think that's, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's good. I don't think it's helpful. Yeah, I, I love the point he makes right along those lines where he says, Though a minister had all the learning in the world, yet if he were a stranger to the converting and sanctifying grace of God, there would be no reason to expect him to prove a blessing to the church. Uh, you know, it, it's you know not so much an emphasis on just the knowledge side of it, but an emphasis, uh, emphasis on sanctification and yeah. personal holiness and piety yeah. that he's getting at there. That, uh, you know, just because... You go out and uh, and you've got all the education behind you. Doesn't mean you're going to be a blessing to the church if you're an obnoxious, arrogant, uh, you know, self-righteous kind of person. Right. He he makes this statement. He says, "For I hold that no class of men are more likely to do harm in the sacred office than your striking, splendid, popular preachers, who have power to excite strong feelings, but not wisdom, prudence, and knowledge enough to regulate and direct it." And I, and I think that nails, nails our great concern is I'm not as concerned about the guy who fails <laughs> because uh, that church is going to be closed up and boarded. I'm, I'm concerned about the untrained that succeeds because the enemy's smart. He just wants people to veer from the truth. 
Right. So he he he's gonna use that uh, personality. He's gonna use that to draw people in. But if you're not growing in the word, if you're not growing in understanding, if you're not growing in knowledge, ultimately, how do you know you're not teaching? heresy how do you know you're not teaching falsehood how do you know that you're not leading people farther away from truth rather than closer to it if you're already in the pastorate and you haven't been to seminary and some of the things we're talking about really are grabbing a hold of you and and you just want to throw your hands up and say well what do i do no you don't quit right but you make sure that you dedicate time to study and, and, and try to find a plan, something to go through consistently, because you want your presuppositions to be tested. You want your biases to be exposed. You want to make sure that you're challenged to think about things. Um, I'm always encouraged by men that are willing to be tested in that way. And so whether it's starting school now or, or starting some course of action, uh, consistent plan consistent school, consistent training, so that you're being prepared, your congregation is only going to be bettered for it. Mm -hmm. You're going to be bettered for it. Your family ultimately will be bettered for it. And ultimately, God will be glorified through it. And I think that's our call, and that's our hope. Um, Obviously, if you're just starting out in ministry, stop what you're doing, go to seminary, or or bring seminary to you, find a pastor to sit under, um, to be matured in, uh, find a plan or a course of action to be trained in. I recognize fully that setting the goal of seminary for everybody is financially not ex- uh, acceptable because I believe that the cost has gotten to the place where, where we see pastors and planters going into, in, into such debt. That's absolutely crazy. The local church needs to help with this. Um, I, I think it can be part of your missions budget if you've never thought about that, is trying to help. That's what we do at First Pres. We try to add part of our missions budget to helping those who would go on to further their education. We do it for those who are entering master's level. Um, but the point being, do whatever you can to help cultivate and change the course of action. We live in a day and age where everybody is exposed to all kinds of falsehood. We want truth to be lifted up. And in a day and age, as we've said it many times over again and over again through this podcast, when most of your people are sitting in the pews, are educated at least with associates, at least with a bachelor's, maybe with a master's, maybe even with a doctorate, they're not going to respect the preacher if the preacher has no formal training whatsoever. Find a way to do that. Now, I'm not saying... Again, I keep saying this over again and over again. We're not saying that a person without formal education is totally uh, ill-equipped. God does have exceptions. That's why even Presbyterians, as orderly as structured as they are, have an exceptions clause, Mm. right? There is exceptions, but don't assume that you're an exception. Don't assume that you're a Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Assume that you need to go through the proper channels, and if you do that, you're being a safeguard for the church. And don't push back against the years that will require to train and to go through the process. It's a sanctifying process for you, for for your wife, for your family, for the church that ultimately you're going to pour into. They're all going to be bettered by it, and God will be glorified by it. Guys, those are my closing remarks. What do you have? Yes and amen. That was pretty pretty much sums it up. (laughs) Thanks again for joining us on the Confessional Collective. We're back at it. We're excited to be here. Um, Hopefully you've enjoyed this discussion on mature uh, preparation for the ministry. If you don't know who Samuel Miller is, buy, do yourself a favor and buy something he's written. Um, An excellent, excellent professor. Take care. Have a great week. 
We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Confessional Collective Podcast. For more information and resources, please visit confessionalcollective.com and be sure to like our Facebook page.